Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll take a look at another angle in the climate debate, as uh, climate change is projected to have a growing impact on the budget and the economy. Our guest for that discussion is Greg Bertelson, CEO of the Bipartisan Climate Leadership Council. Then we'll discuss the latest on the immigration front with George Bruno, an immigration lawyer, an experienced diplomat, and former U.S. ambassador to Belize. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Communications Director Av Harris join me for the discussion. Well, in this uh, time of bitter partisanship in Congress, It may come as a bit of a welcome surprise that there's actually a bipartisan movement on climate-related legislation, at least in the Senate. It would open the door for the first time to a carbon fee of sorts. Specifically, it would impose a fee on imported goods whose production is deemed carbon-intensive. So a kind of import tariff on goods that take a high amount of of, uh, carbon emissions to produce. It, uh, it responds to similar fees expected to be implemented this fall by the European Union on all imports, including American products. Are these border carbon adjustments the first step towards a bipartisan consensus? We'll ask Greg Bertelson of the Bipartisan Climate Council. Uh, his organization is probably the best known for uh, getting this border carbon adjustment uh, idea circulating uh, on the congressional agenda. Greg, Av, and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank Thanks, you. Bob. Thank you, Bob. Good to be here. Greg, it's, uh, it's fun to be talking about something other than the debt limit. Um, we've been consumed with that lately. So uh, we're talking about the climate today and, and something that isn't totally partisan. Um, your organization is involved with uh, border carbon adjustments, and uh, I wonder if you could explain a little bit uh, what that is and, uh, and why there is some bipartisan interest in the concept. Yes, well, thanks, Bob. Tori, Av, great to be with you today and happy to be providing you with a little relief from the debt <laughs> Discussion. Of course, I imagine we may veer into fiscal issues as we're talking about things like carbon pricing and, sure. and fees at the border. But Bob, to, to your question, so uh, at the simplest level or the simplest level I can make it, what we're talking about when we use a term like a border carbon adjustment is a fee assessed on goods coming into the country based on the amount of carbon pollution, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions it took to manufacture that product. This is a global issue, climate change, a ton of carbon that's emitted in New Hampshire uh, is equivalent in terms of its climate impacts as a ton that's emitted in in China. And if we're going to address this problem, this challenge of climate change at the required scale and speed, 
we need to figure out a way not only to lower our domestic emissions, the emissions that take place in the United States, we're about 10% of global emissions. We got to figure out a way to get, have the rest of the world come along as well. And the advantage of a fee at the border is that we are leveraging the very powerful force that is the U.S. consumer, our consumption culture, and sending a price signal, a market signal to all those manufacturers who export goods to the United States to reduce their emissions. The other advantage of this type of a policy is it rewards those actors in the global economy that are operating the cleanest, that are leading in reducing their emissions. And it just so happens that among the most efficient, cleanest companies in the world are those that operate here in the United States. So we've done analysis which shows that U.S. manufacturers, on average, are about 44% more carbon efficient than the global average, meaning we can make the same goods while emitting about 44% less emissions. And so if we get the incentives right, we get those market incentives right, we're going to reward U.S. manufacturers, boost the U.S. economy, and encourage everyone else in the world to compete to lower their emissions. What uh, Could you give us some examples of what imported goods would be uh, subject to the adjustment? So the most obvious are the really heavy manufactured goods like steel and aluminum and chemicals. Those are heavily traded. They are very energy intensive and they're very carbon intensive. It takes a lot of energy to make a ton of steel and it requires a lot of carbon emissions. And so if we were to include those goods, we would capture a good percentage of global emissions. Uh, and we'd also send a fairly powerful market reward to manufacturers that are already leading the way. So using steel as an example, we're anywhere from from 50% to 300% more efficient than many of the competitors for whom we compete with domestically who are exporting steel to the United States. And if we got these incentives right, we would see U.S. capacity, U.S. steel capacity max out. So that means every steel mill in the country is operating at max capacity. And what's displaced are the most carbon intensive, highest polluting parts of the market that are importing into the United States. In Washington, people get obsessed with terminology. Uh, so if, if somebody were to call this a carbon tax, would they be wrong? Terminology are, is in the, uh, the mouth of the beholder. Is that a real expression? In the eyes of the beholder? Uh, you know, you can call it any number of things, and it has been called a number of things. That we think the most technically correct term is a carbon intensity import fee. This is a performance standard, an environmental performance standard based on the amount of carbon pollution it took to make a good. I personally am not afraid of the term carbon tax. I actually am a supporter of a carbon tax. And we may spend some time later in the program talking about why the term may sound scary, but the policy itself is actually quite sound and effective. I think your term is better. Um, but we'll see. Uh, Tori? I'd like to go back and talk a little bit about the, the goods that are, that are affected. You talk about the big polluters in the world. I naturally think of countries like India and China. Um, we import a lot of goods 
from those countries. A lot of those goods are low cost. They're the goods that you see at say, you know, Target, Walmart, you know, and and those those stores, those those big box retailers have been able to provide goods to middle low income families um and and you know allow them to furnish their homes etc and 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 have things that they otherwise would not because they're less expensive than us manufactured goods um do you see this uh imp- this carbon import uh, border adjustment fee do you see this as having an impact on the price of those of those goods and if so is there a political Aside from the whole, is this a fee? Is this a new tax? You know, are we getting Republicans crosswise of their no new tax pledge? But is there a political angle here for Democrats who might be environmentally conscious, but also very conscious about raising the cost of of retail goods for low income families who are already experiencing pain through inflation? First, it's important to assess any policy, not in isolation, but in the full picture, full suite of policies. So first, you've always got to ask the question, or we always ask the question, as opposed to what? So we know that we're going to be addressing climate through policy. We are already, as a country, implementing various various policies. And at the end of the day, you've basically got three options, three, three categories of options for, for climate policy. The first is you can do the subsidy approach. And as a country, we've leaned very heavily on the subsidy approach. Last year, I'm sure you guys have spent time talking about it. The president in the Democratic Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, $370 billion of subsidies for clean energy uh, goods. Goldman Sachs estimates that's going to be close to a trillion dollars over 10 years, uh, but a big chunk of money for subsidies. The second approach is you can do regulations. So command and control regulations telling companies, which technologies they need to use to continue operating. Just last week, the Biden administration proposed a new set of regulations on power plants, coal-fired power plants, natural gas-fired power plants. Uh, And the third is some form of a market policy, a, a policy that somewhere or in parts of the economy puts a fee on the thing you want less of, which is carbon emissions, and then you let the market figure out where the reductions come from. The subsidy approach needs to be used in some cases, but at, at, at scale to reduce this problem comes at an enormous taxpayer cost. And you guys know this, frankly, better than me, that those costs are uh, compounded with time and there is an expense that taxpayers ultimately pay for it. The regulatory approach as well. There's a place for regulations in our economy. There's a place for regulations in the climate discussion. But those costs, too, are, are, are trickled down to consumers. Mm-hmm. The advantage of the market-based approach it is that it's, it's exceptionally efficient. The market figures out where the absolute lowest cost reductions come from, and that's what we're left with. So in all scenarios, there is a cost impact, but actually the pricing or a fee approach, or in this case, a border import fee, is the least cost. The second point I'd make is, what does everybody in Washington agree on right now? It's outcompeting China. That is the bipartisan issue of the day. Mm-hmm. And what's one of the outcomes that these bipartisan lawmakers, the vast majority of members of Congress want to see? 
is some form of a decoupling from China, some shift in our economy to be less reliant on China. That does not happen without cost impacts. It just doesn't. So anything we're talking about in the space of changing our supply chains, at least in the short term, comes with a cost impact. Again, the beauty of this approach is that it's highly efficient. It's based on environmental performance. Manufacturers from anywhere in the world can reduce the amount of fee they're paying at the border simply by reducing their pollution. So it's a, it's a great question, Tori. It's complex. But at the end of the day, it's why we are so supportive of these market-based approaches, because we believe in the efficiency of the market. Uh, and we believe ultimately that's what delivers the best results at the lowest cost. For the people who are listening, the first attack ad you're going to see is going to, you know, some industry is going to say, oh, this is going to raise your costs. This is going to raise your prices. You are encouraging our listeners to sit and say, okay, relative to what? If we do, if we, we know that we need to do something about climate change. If we approach this through regulation, costs are going to go up. If we approach this through, you know, federal taxation, costs are going to go up. This is a market-based approach and companies can pick and choose where they want to get their imports from based on where this fee is applied. And that is the most efficient way to reduce carbon emissions uh, and creating the least amount of pain. So when you see this attack ad, you know, go beyond, think critically, evaluate more holistically, correct? Can't say it any better than that. (laughs) I am interested in the politics of the moment because you've got several Republicans in the Senate. I think uh, you've got Bill Cassidy, you've got Lindsey Graham, a couple of others who are interested in this and this border carbon adjustments. Um, And the Republican Party traditionally has been more of the free trade party, um, you know, break down some of those barriers and tariffs to trade. Um, Although I would say uh, the script was flipped a little bit during the Trump administration. You Um, think? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just just a little bit. But um, so I'm wondering, you know, how you're getting Republican support for this, because some might say that this sounds a little protectionist. Yeah, another great, great question. So the really intriguing thing about this policy approach is that you can come to it purely with a climate interest. And we've seen that and find really effective policy to reduce global emissions. You didn't mention it, uh, but on the Democratic side of the aisle, Sheldon Whitehouse, who's often thought of as the biggest climate hawk in the Senate, has endorsed this sort of an approach. Senator Coons from Delaware, a number of others. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you could come to this with an interest purely in U.S. economic interests, purely in our geopolitical standing and find a policy that's going to deliver a massive benefit to the U.S. economy because of this carbon advantage, because of our efficiency advantage over the rest of the world. So that's the, that's the entry point. And it's, I guess I should say that's the entry points. And it's been different for Democrats and Republicans. And by the way, the, the senators who are working on this on both sides of the aisle, they all care about climate and they all care about the economy. They probably weight those a little differently. I would say the Republicans working on it are a little bit more focused on the economic impact. So that's sort of point one. The second thing I would note on the on the trade part of it is, to Tory's point, in thinking through this issue in a, in a, in a thoughtful manner, you know, a tariff, a traditional tariff is arbitrary in some ways, right? It's, a, it's an arbitrary 
in a sense, percentage on, on goods. And if you are an exporter to the country, to the U.S., you have no choice but to pay that, that tariff rate. This is an environmental performance standard, what we're talking about. This is a, 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 a fee that's based on that, 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 that's applied based on your environmental performance. So every manufacturer who wants to serve the U.S. market has the opportunity to pay zero dollars simply by reducing their emissions. So while it shares some characteristics with a traditional tariff, at the end of the day, this is performance-based and, and actually, by its nature, uh, a free market approach, right? This is capitalism. This is competition for lower pollution. So um, one more question for you, and then we probably have to uh, go to break. But a couple of technical questions, because when you institute a policy like this, I'm sure that you have to at least make a projection for how much revenue you might see coming in um, if you institute this kind of border carbon adjustment fee. And then the other question is, have you uh, looked at how much or maybe made a projection for how much you might be able to incent companies to reduce their emissions by doing something like this? It's, it's probably very difficult to calculate something like that and highly speculative, but I'm very curious if you've, if you've made projections for both of those things. Yeah, great, great question. So we've, we, we have looked at this. So let me start with the second question first. We've done an assessment of what the emission reduction potential may be. And so just to use some of our, our recent analysis, if all goods that are, were imported to the United States were matched the environmental performance of the goods that are manufactured in the United States, meaning that if the goods coming in we're at the same carbon pollution levels as the equivalent manufacturer in the United States, we would reduce U.S. emissions, uh, or I should say global emissions, by 700 million tons per year, 700 million tons per year. Part of what we are big proponents of is not just the U.S. going alone, but the United States forming partnership with other like-minded countries. So there's a discussion at the G7 right now around something that's often referred to as a carbon club, in which countries would band together and apply a similar border fee on carbon emissions around all of our, our countries. And if we form something like that, we would cut global emissions by over 2 billion tons per year, which is a substantial chunk of global emissions. Globally, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 billion, I'm sorry, 40 billion tons per year. On the, on the revenue side, it's not a tremendous amount of revenue that you're raising, and it depends on the dollar amount that you're actually applying at the fee. So it's, it's you know, but we've done, we've often kicked around the idea of a 40 or $50 a ton fee, and you're in the like $1 billion to $2 billion uh, per year, where you see a big revenue uh, number is when you start talking about a domestic carbon fee, which uh, we may explore later in the program. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Av Harris, and I are discussing border carbon adjustment legislation with Greg Bertelson, CEO of the Bipartisan Climate Leadership Council. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. 
Corey Gorman, Av Harris, and I are discussing border carbon adjustment legislation with Greg Bertelson, CEO of the Bipartisan Climate Leadership Council. Uh, Greg, when we left off, we were talking about border adjustment legislation. Of course, the the, uh, European Union is already a little bit ahead of us on this and implementing, well, it's been enacted and it will be implemented uh, starting in the fall, uh, a program similar to this, and uh, although not identical. So you might want to talk about the, um, the differences between what is being considered here in the U.S. in the Senate uh, legislation and what the EU is proposing. And then, um, you know, whether that poses any problems under international agreements like the World Trade, uh, under the World Trade Organization from the general agreement on tariffs and trades, there might be some issues uh, there. I'm not saying that there are, but it's, it's, it's a new thing. And so uh, there might be some litigation over that. Absolutely. And Bob, you're exactly right. The European Union is a few steps ahead of the United States in developing their own, what they would refer to as a carbon border adjustment mechanism. It's intended to apply to really energy intensive manufacturers like we were talking about before, steel and aluminum, among other products. It's scheduled to go into force in 2026, but the implementing acts are starting uh, right now. And that will mean that goods from the United States and everywhere else in the world will be assessed a fee coming into the European Union. And I could talk a little bit about what that might mean for manufacturers, but I think an important point to make and one we make to lawmakers every day is this is happening globally. And the European Union won't be the last major economy to deploy this kind of a policy. The U.S. needs to be at the lead of these discussions. We need to have our own version of what the European Union is doing. But longer term, we need to find partnership with the EU in Japan and South Korea and Canada. And there's partnership to be had. We've got to work through some differences. But on the highest of levels, our objectives are very similar. We all want to address global climate change. We all want a policy approach that provides a level playing field for our manufacturers and gives us the opportunity to compete fairly in the global economy. In terms of the differences between the CBAM and the EU and the US, well, the US is still developing what we're going to promote. We talked earlier about the Republican senators who are exploring policy and the Democratic senators who are exploring policy. And while they are aligned in their longer term objectives of having a climate policy that benefits US manufacturers, there are still key policy differences between where those senators are. So it remains to be seen exactly the approach the US is going to be taking. But there is building momentum in the U.S. to do something, and that's very positive. In terms of the World Trade Organization, so for listeners who are not familiar, the World Trade Organization is a global body of which the United States is a member that's intended to be the referee around trade. And there are very complex rules and requirements on what countries can and cannot do. largely designed to prevent being overly protectionist in your policies. So first point to make is in this suite of policies, it is totally untested. 
So we don't know how WTO, how the, how the, how the um, judicial body within it would respond to these types of proposals. We also know that WTO as a body is evolving. When it was drafted, it didn't specifically uh, address climate change, although it is very clear that countries are at liberty to enact trade policies that are designed to protect the environment. And that's exactly what these policies are intended to do. Further, we're big proponents of market-based approaches, one that allow for competition, that promote competition. And so if the end of what the U.S. policy process is uh, results in something that is environmental first in terms of its objectives and is promoting fair competition across the board, then I think we'll find ourselves in very firm footing when it comes to WTO. Av, how do we measure the carbon intensity of this kind of manufacturing production? Are there standards we can all agree to? And who gets to decide that? There is a tremendous amount of data already out there that is largely accepted and agreed upon, and we need orders of magnitude more data. Uh, so the important thing to point out is that we have enough to get started. We have an adequate enough sense of the global emissions picture, which industries and which countries are emitting and how much. And the way you start is U.S. policymakers drafting rules for our policy and then U.S. Uh, officials administering the program. This will start with, in some cases, actual real facility level data. And in other cases, it will be based on estimates using very effective and accurate proxies for what emissions might be. And then with time, as reporting improves, the data will become more and more precise right down to the product level. When we implement this, we as a country, as the implementing country, will tell exporters to the United States what their carbon emissions were effectively. We'll take the publicly available information and we will tell them this is what your charge is. And if you don't agree with us, you can submit alternate information based on your facility level data, allow it to be verifiable, make sure that it's credible, and we'll use that number instead. So you start with kind of your best available data and estimates, which we will apply at our border. And then every exporter to the United States has the ability to show us that their actual performance was different. So I think this is a neat idea. And I'd, I'd really like to understand sort of the, the political opportunities that exist for this. So as you said in one of your opening statements, uh, the Congress passed you know, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, in 2022. It had a host of new uh, uh, tax provisions in there. Is this type of, of, of border uh, adjustment uh, carbon fee, is this something that the federal government can implement under the authorities that were passed in the Inflation Reduction Act? Or is this something that has to pass as entirely new legislation? So it has to go through the House and the Senate, be signed by the president. 
And if it does have to be entirely new legislation, what is your projection, your outlook for when might we see something like this? It's obviously too soon for something like the debt limit legislation to carry this as a, as a rider. You know, but do you see this as something that that President Biden can accomplish before the end of his first term? Or is this something that's still a couple of years away? The executive branch, the Biden administration likely has some authority to get started in this arena. In fact, they are right now negotiating a bilateral trade deal with the European Union, just taking two products, aluminum and steel. So just a two-country deal, working on carbon intensity, uh, import fees. And so they certainly believe they've got the authority as uh, uh, with existing legislation. At the end of the day, this is something Congress needs to weigh in on. We need to have bipartisan legislation. And Tory, we need to go old school. We need to go back to going, working this through committee processes, having hearings, having experts come and inform lawmakers, having amendments, bringing this to the floor in regular order and all of that. And I think we'll get there. We know that there is a growing uh, amount of interest among the electorate to address climate change. We know there is a growing amount of uh, concern among the electorate to ensure that the United States remains competitive, particularly our manufacturing base. We know that there's a growing concern about some of our geopolitical rivals. And this policy uniquely serves all of those interests. And you just look at who's already involved in the early days. You've got a conservative Republican senator from North Dakota and Senator Kramer, conservative Republicans like Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy. And then you've got on the Democratic side, folks like Senator Whitehouse and, and Coons. And so if that if it can already unite that diverse of representatives representing diverse states, uh-huh. a lot of different economic interests, I see this as probably the only uh, major climate policy, at least in the near term, um, that can get the kind of bipartisan support to get back to passing big legislation the right way. You have many other things on your uh, on your climate agenda, but I wanted to see if if we could give you a, a couple of minutes to talk about some of the other pillars of your bipartisan uh, climate roadmap, because I think Tori's correct. There is an interesting moment um, happening right now uh, with climate and uh, a recognition, I would say, um, by uh, a lot of Republicans that this is this is real, this is happening, and and we need to do something. And I think that is a major shift. Um, that's like a generational shift politically. So, what are some of the things um, in your bipartisan uh, climate roadmap that you want Congress to focus on too? If we're going to have a serious discussion about how we're going to decarbonize our domestic economy while not exacerbating other issues like oh, I don't know, the federal deficit, we need to start thinking about how we can do something like a carbon fee domestically. So the approach that we've long been advocates for is called a carbon dividends policy. And in short, what it would do is instead of applying that carbon fee on goods coming into the country, it would apply to fossil fuels when they enter the economy. There actually aren't that many points in which that takes place. It's like one or 2,000 points in the economy. But because our everything we do runs on energy, the price signal of that fee trickles through the entire economy. So every economic decision in the economy is at least slightly informed by 
which option emits less carbon. Most of this to the consumer is imperceivable or, or fairly insignificant, but at the big decision points of the economy, like if you're a utility and you're deciding which power plant to build, coal or natural gas or nuclear or renewables, or which power plant to run among those fuels, you're going to trend towards the, the cleaner option. And that's why nearly every economist in the world who has looked at this issue has agreed that a fee on carbon is the most economically efficient way to go about it. There are things you can do with the revenue to more than offset the cost to consumers. There are things you can do with the revenue if you wanted to, to help get at some of our fiscal issues as well. Um, it's the right way to go. We'll get there eventually. Yeah, we don't often uh, end a segment on an optimistic note around here, but uh, <laughs> but uh, thanks for that. Uh, and I hope you're right. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Av Harris, and I have been discussing the border carbon adjustment uh, concept with Greg Bertelson, CEO of the Bipartisan Climate Leadership Council. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. In this segment, Av Harris and I welcome back to the program George Bruno, an immigration lawyer, experienced diplomat, and former U.S. ambassador to Belize. George, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. You know, we wanted to have you back on the show at this time because there's been a lot of changes in uh, U.S. immigration policy. And so I kind of wanted to get your take on that. Um, I, I guess, first off, the, the Biden administration finally ended the, the so-called Title II uh, program. Title where, yeah, 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 where, where the, um, you know, the government could uh, expeditiously deport, I guess, or uh, deny uh, status to, to people coming in looking for uh, immigration. I mean, looking for asylum. Um, so we've been using that. That was that was done as a health care measure, as uh, you know, under a health care COVID emergency, which is now over. So um, what effect has that had on uh, on the on the border? So uh, I'm in Texas today and uh, Texas is uh, ground zero for a lot of the immigration activity. Uh the, uh, the expected surge after the lifting of Title 42 didn't happen, but, uh, but there's still uh, thousands of people coming across the border every day. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a reflection of, of how our immigration system continues to be broken. Uh, the, uh, the problem is, is that... Uh, it's been jammed up in Congress since uh, the days of uh, 2005 when uh, uh, Senator McCain and uh, Ted Kennedy were leading the charge to uh, promote immigration reform. Uh, today, uh, both of those, you know, towering figures are gone and there doesn't appear to be a champion for immigration reform. And I don't see uh, anything dramatic happening in uh, over over the next uh, well Biden term? Uh, the numbers are so large that uh, uh, of people wanting to come in that uh, 
the system is all jammed up. Uh, many of them who are trying to use the procedures that have set up uh, report that the, the system frequently uh, crashes, that uh, that they don't understand uh, the form. So as far as asylum goes, uh, the system now is running probably a backlog of minimum three years, four years, and before long, it'll probably be five years before somebody's petition, uh, uh, you know, you know, gets, gets adjudicated. I noticed on the news just recently that Mayor Adams in, in New York uh, is complaining that uh, immigrants or, or migrants are, are coming uh, to New York City uh, and, uh, uh, and he was railing against the rule that prevent uh, migrants from working or applying for a, uh, an employment authorization uh, for uh, preventing them from doing it for at least six months. Uh, but the, the problem of making uh, uh, employment authorization easy is that it just encourages more migration. Uh, and and so uh, the six month rule was put in place uh, to uh, sort of caution people for from thinking that as soon as they cross the border they could go to work. Hmm. So Bob, do you uh, want to jump in here? Absolutely. So Ambassador Bruno, I also share your pessimism and frustration that there has really been no. Um, substantive progress on immigration reform in a long time in Congress. So um, a few months ago, uh, we spoke to Teresa Cardinal Brown from the Bipartisan Policy Center, who was talking about some end of the year in 2022, sort of glimmers of hope that there were bipartisan talks on some pieces of, of immigration reform. That seems to have fizzled a little bit in in the last uh, few uh, months. But uh, what we're seeing through the media reports is that there seems to be a bit of a slow burn. It's on a back burner, but people are still talking. I'm wondering if you could get the ear of some of these Republicans and Democrats um, in Congress who may still be talking about immigration reform. What would be some uh, a couple of steps that you would recommend for them to do first? Some things that would not be necessarily huge or comprehensive, but some positive actions that Congress could take to start the process of trying to fix a broken system? Well, the, the easiest first step would, of course, to be to deal with uh, uh, the, DACA, the DACA uh, migrants that uh, are living in the United States. These are young people brought uh, to the United States by their parents uh, and for all intents and purposes, have uh, adopted the American culture and have no connection to uh, their parents' home home country. Uh, uh, they're no longer young people. They're now uh, people in their thirties and their forties, and and uh, you know uh, maybe even older than that. Uh, th this has been uh, delayed so long. Uh, uh, my thinking has come around on this, and uh, and uh, uh, I, I uh, am leaning toward the proposal that Tom Friedman in the New York Times 
proposed uh, a few weeks ago that the only way this is going to get solved is that uh, uh, we secure the border, uh, and that includes uh, 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 having uh, uh, more law enforcement and military, perhaps, along the border, uh, and uh, and at the same time uh, uh, making our rules uh a little more flexible and allowing people in. The problem with the whole asylum uh, approach is that asylum was never intended for economic migrants. It, it was uh, the, the whole asylum structure is built around uh, uh, protection of, uh, of people's uh, political beliefs and, and, uh, and uh, escaping persecution uh, for those beliefs. Uh, it, it, it doesn't address the, the economic problem, which is the driver of uh, migrants coming to the U.S. border. And as far as uh, the, the Biden uh, initiative on allowing people into the United States uh, through the process of humanitarian parole, uh, we should uh, note that uh, that that procedure only allows a person to come into the United States for a two-year period. After that, uh, uh, there is no further step and no further extension uh, for that person. So unless they get a sponsor of some kind, uh, they're, they're, they're kind of stuck in no man's land. Um, I hear you about DACA, which... Uh, it was sort of premiered about 10 years ago under the Obama administration, which is it's deferred action, right? For t temporarily, we are not going to deport you if you were you were brought here as a child and had no control over it, even though technically, you know, it may have been uh, breaking the law. Um, so that's an idea that seems to have gotten some bipartisan traction. That's one of the things that was on the table. And. In terms of securing the border, we see the Biden administration sending down some National Guard troops, about a thousand or so, fifteen hundred. Um, it seems to me that uh, there's there are probably legal problems with that, and 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 the kind of roles that those National Guard troops can play. What would be that, some that's, things that's to right. secure the border? That how could we secure the border if if we have trouble doing it that way? Uh, National Guard and military are prevented from engaging in uh, in, in law enforcement activities. Uh, they they can't detain. They can't arrest. Uh, they can only uh, assist and facilitate uh, uh, law enforcement, which is uh, uh, ICE uh, immigration and uh, you know customs enforcement. Uh, who are the uh, uh, you know border border police? Uh, so it's a very very difficult situation, and we've uh, we've run out of holding centers along the border. So uh, a lot of people are being let in uh, simply because there's you know no place no place to put them. Uh, but uh, I, I do think we're at a point where uh, uh, we need to uh, secure the border and come up with uh, 
new definitions of, of asylum and how people can adjust to become uh, legal in the United States. You know, in my home state of New Hampshire, uh, unemployment uh, figures released last week is 2.1. There are job openings uh, and, uh, and, and uh, signs for jobs everywhere you go in the state of New Hampshire. And I suspect that's true in many other states. Uh, we need immigrants. They help uh, our economy. Uh, uh, you know, you know, they they help our economy. They pay taxes, and uh, uh, and they contribute to society. So it isn't as if uh, we don't we don't need uh, the talent and the energy coming in. We just don't have a system that makes it flow easily. Well, that's that's the thing that is just so annoying. Is that it's a problem that is ripe for bipartisan compromise and uh, and we're you know just not getting it and we're losing out economically on this and creating a uh, crisis at the border that's that's unnecessary but that's all the time that we have for <laughs> for our uh, for this segment this week uh, but we'll have you back on again to monitor this issue because it certainly is an important one you're listening to facing the future I'm your host Bob Bixby tune in next week when uh, I'll be back with another edition of facing the future. 